Welcome to Grayson 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. This is Ed Mellick, and today we're bringing you part two of the discussion we began last week with James Ackerman, the president and CEO of Prison Fellowship, the nation's largest outreach to prisoners, former prisoners, and their families. Each month, Prison Fellowship touches the lives of tens of thousands of prisoners to truly transform them, help their families, and improve their odds of success when they are released from prison. Without reviewing all the statistics we read last week, we can safely start by saying that our criminal justice system is broken. We lock up way too many people in awful conditions. We generally don't help them rehabilitate and heal. Instead, our prisons seem to drain the life out of these inmates and train them in new forms of criminal behavior. And the majority of those released commit more crimes and return to prison. James joins us to talk about a number of prison fellowship programs and their remarkable impact on those who participate and in turn, the impact they have on our society. James, welcome back to Grace and 30. Yes, it's nice to see you again. <laughs> <laughs> um, we spent uh, quite a bit of time before talking sort of about the background, the origins of prison fellowship and how it's grown to touch. I was kind of shocked, 449 prisons. Mm -hmm. Uh, 1,233 angel programs, which work with the children of prisoners. And then you have these academies in 76 prisons. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you probably touch 25,000 people, prisoners a month, mm -hmm. and maybe 200,000 unique mm -hmm. prisoners a month. And then you even mentioned 291,000 kids. Yeah. So you're really getting deeply into the prison system and, and for, for to do a lot of good, to really accomplish a lot of good. Right. So, so thank you for that, and I commend you for of that. Course. We talked also sort of about some of the statistics behind the success in the programs and that they've been shown really in terms of data science to be effective. And so more and more people are taking note. So we really focused uh, back then on work with the prisoners and helping them to, to make profound life changes. And then when they get out to succeed and then reduce the likelihood of them returning. Now what I wanted to do was talk a, a bit about some of these other programs you have. And I think there are four major things that are on your website in addition to the work you do with the uh, inmates. And that's the work with the wardens, uh, uh, the ministering to the families and the kids. These programs to help people when they get out to succeed when they get out, not to have the second prison effect. And then the, the advocating work you're doing to restore uh, sort of the justice system to reform it. So pick your favorite. That you want to start with? Oh, there. my favorite. That's <laughs> not fair. Because um, I know they're all—they all sound great, and you're doing a lot of great things. But they are great. But let's start with let's start with the families. We've been in prison. We've been serving uh, men and women. Talking about serving men and women in prison, taking them through our academy model and, and all that. Let's go outside the prison to the children of inmates. Right? Um, when a man or woman goes to prison, a mother or father goes to, to prison, it often has devastating economic and emotional impact on the family, right? Most households in America are, are dual income households, right? Most married households in America are dual income households. So if one of the parents goes away to prison, it has a horrible economic impact. But imagine when you were a child, if your father or mother had gone away to prison and how that you would make you feel as a child not having mom or dad around. So part of our ministry is about reconciling families, helping families to heal and stay connected. And one of the ways in which we do that is through the Angel Tree program. So we have volunteers sign up, incarcerated moms and dads, as you mentioned a moment ago, in 
approximately 1,233 1, prisons across the country and jails um, to sign up their kids for Angel Tree. And what they do is they write down the kid's name, the age of the child, um, his, his or her gender, and the type of gift that the parent thinks that that child would like, along with a message of, that they want to send to the child. We processed over 160,000 applications this last year, right, which resulted in delivering Christmas gifts to over 291,000 children of incarcerated men and women. But we went further this year. We actually worked out a deal with Zondervan through their Zonder Kids label to offer a full text adventure Bible in either English or Spanish to every single household. Wow, right? that's a lot. Because part of Angel Tree is delivering the gospel, and what better way to deliver the gospel than offer a full-text Bible, Yep. right? So um, we're so happy with the outcome that we're going to do it again this year. So this is a tremendously huge program. And, you know, one, w one thing I would encourage you to consider on a, on a, a future episode of, of your show is to invite, uh, you know, a young man or a young woman who today is, you know, a young adult but was an Angel Tree child and hear their story. Because I've heard a number of these stories and I'm telling you, it's exactly what we describe of that ability to have, you know, receive a Christmas gift coming through your front door that's from your mom or dad who happens to be in prison wow. and that sense of connection. Yeah. So it's, it's a great, great program. It was founded by a woman named Mary Kay Beard who was on the FBI's most wanted list. She was a bank robber. <laughs> she went away to federal prison when they finally found her and she noticed that women in prison were like wrapping up socks and toothpaste and stuff like that to give to their children because they had nothing else to give at Christmas. So when she got out, she started Angel Tree. Chuck Colson fell absolutely in love with the program and brought Mary Kay Beard into prison fellowship. And that's how Angel Tree got started. Oh, that's, that's a great story on so many <laughs> levels because it's just here's someone who had a practical problem yeah. and, and they did something to address it. Then somebody else noticed it and say, hey, let's take this thing and blow it up yeah. and spread it out. And it's a win-win-win all around. Yeah, I mean, Mary, Mary Kay Beard could handle it within a, within a specified community. Prison Fellowship was able to scale it on a national basis. Oh, that's great. We they, serve uh, children in every single state. And, and so a lot of the programs I read about that you guys do, you're involved all year. It's not just a, a one-time shot. You're typically helping people throughout the year, which yeah. is rare. We strongly encourage church, local churches in particular to invite the Angel Tree families in their community to become part of their community. So they can provide, the local church can provide services to those children and families year-round. But we also have a program called Angel Tree Camping, where at summertime we partner with established Christian camps all across the country, and we pay scholarship to send children to, to sleepaway camp that otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it, yeah. right? And so, you know, we last year spent, sent just under 7,000 children away to sleepaway camp last summer, and we've now put in place the infrastructure to double the number of kids we're sending away to camp, right? Because can you imagine, you grow up like in, you know, inner city Washington, D.C., right? Yeah. And you've never, you may never have been, even been in the country, Right? Yep. And now all of a sudden you're canoeing and doing archery and riding horses and doing crafts and this and that. I mean, it's just, it, it provides an opportunity to pivot a child's life just a little bit to hopefully set them in a new direction, a direction that's focused on Christ and a new purpose and not on the recycling of, of from family to family, generation to generation, that is often the case in crime.
Just a brief break here just to remind people that we're talking to James Ackerman, the president and CEO of Prison Fellowship, the nation's largest outreach to prisoners, former prisoners, and their families. Working with tens of thousands of prisoners to truly transform them, help their families, and improve their odds of success when they are released from prison. Let's talk about uh, the wardens, because yeah. we see on TV, we see documentaries, I, I see jail and prison, and the conditions in some of these places are just awful. Yeah. And I know you guys are working with wardens to try to change the culture of the prison. Uh, tell us a little bit about some of those programs that you're involved in or that you've created. So Wardens Exchange is a nine-month-long program with three two-day in-residencies where we take wardens from across the country to study case studies of what has worked and not worked in their prisons, right? Um, our whole vision is that, that incarceration should be restorative in nature, right? The goal should be rehabilitation. You're already being punished by being sent away to prison, right? But if you make prison only about punishment, you're not actually solving anything. If you put people on a path to restoration, you're doing two things. You're improving the culture in the prison while they're there, which is good for everybody, from the other inmates to the corrections officers to the warden, right? And you're preparing to return to society people who are going to be productive and contribute positively to the community, right? So that's what Warden's Exchange is all about. And we have had, uh, you know, in the current class is a warden from Leavenworth, the warden's from Folsom Prison in California. Graduating class last year was the warden from San Quentin. Uh, we have on our advisory board the former warden of the Federal Supermax in Florence, Colorado. We have Burl Kane, the famous warden from Angola. Um, so we have, you know, uh, it's a tremendously big program. It's a big idea. In a sense, I, I liken it to sort of burning the candle from both sides, right? On one side, we're serving the inmates and equipping them to live successfully in and out of prison. And on the other side, we're working with the wardens to see how they can create a more restorative environment that achieves exactly the same thing. Do you have an example of something you know, that, that changed because of that? Some warden learned things and he went back into the prison and helped in some way and, and it could be anything. I mean, I read about the conditions, you know, the, the bad water, polluted water in the prisons and flooding the vermin and the insects and things like that. Are, are there things that have come out of these, these, this cross program that where people went back into prisons and they were able to affect change that really helped the inmates? I think the biggest, the biggest effect and the goal is is that comment I made earlier about separating out what somebody did from who they are, right? And providing people a pathway. Sometimes it's through incentives, right? You know, more time in the yard if you are doing this, that, and, and the other thing that you're supposed to be doing instead of the things that you're not supposed to be doing. You know, creating opportunities for people to stand up and show that they can be productive citizens, right? Um, but it's an attitude, right? So Bob Hood, who was the, uh, until he retired, the, uh, the warden for the Federal Supermax in Florence, Colorado, where the Unabomber is, where the First World Trade Center bomber is, you know, some of the leaders of some of the biggest gangs ever are incarcerated. I mean, these are people who've done the worst of the worst of the worst. He used to go around and meet with every single one of the inmates who would talk to him every month just to treat them with basic human dignity and respect. Well, that alone began to change the culture of the whole place, right? The worst criminals in the country, and the warden is going to visit with them. Hey, how you doing? Yeah. 
So it's a relationship. Yeah. Right? Just he, building relationships. And he doesn't reveal what conversation he had with whom or whatever. He's very confidential in that way. But I love that sense. So if you're the warden of a prison that's a, you know, state medium security prison, you're like, wow, if the warden of like the prison that is the Alcatraz of the Rockies, right, can treat his inmates with basic dignity and respect, well, why can't I? Yep. And if I can do it, why can't my staff? And if my staff is doing it, aren't we creating a, a better culture for everybody? Yep. Burl Kane, who's a very colorful guy and was the warden of Angola for 28 years, I once asked him, what makes good prison culture? He said, oh, that's easy. He said, good food, good medicine, good plan, and good praying. <laughs> His whole philosophy of a good, yep. positive prison cult. But think about it. Yeah, it's true. Feed them good food. Yeah. They're going to be happy. Yeah. You know, get, take care of their medical needs. Yep. That's going to make them happy. You know, give them an opportunity to play and, you know, be men and, and athletic and all that. That's great. And you give them opportunities for them to exercise their religious freedom. You know, that's, that's awesome, too. Yeah. What's well, treating people with dignity. Right. It, it's interesting. It's related to something a friend of mine said once. He said, you can scare people into behaving right, you know, and, and that can be effective to a degree, but, you know, you, you see what happened when Russia left the Eastern Bloc countries and civil wars broke out. People can do good things because they're going to get a reward, but the most important motivator is love. If you right. develop a relationship with someone and you start to love that person, you don't want to hurt them, you want to do the best for them and right. make them proud, that's the, that's the ultimate motivator. And it sounds like what you guys are trying to do is get this attitude, this culture of love right. to be spread throughout the prison system. And it's, it's a bit of all, right? But at the end of the day, it's all led with love, right? Yep. If you've raised children, as we have, you know, I've had to pull all three of the levers uh, with our children, particularly with our son. And yeah. so, you know, there has to be sometimes the threat of there's going to be a consequence yep. for this, yep. right? And so, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, but, but at the end of the day, um, it's it's that phrase that we both have mentioned, just treating people with basic human dignity and respect, treating people like they are people. I heard a pastor once talk about his son did something where he, he lied and he went to go somewhere partying instead of saying he was going to be over someone's home and it was a it led to a lot of angst. And when the boy came home that night, they didn't say anything to him. And then the next morning they still didn't say anything, but the, the father who was a pastor went into his bedroom and just looked at him and the son knew he knew and instead of yelling at him or punishing him he just simply said when you do what you did you head closer towards darkness instead of towards the light and and I, I love you I don't want to see you go there right and he simply turned and left the room right he said his son the next morning was up at 5 a.m. <laughs> waiting to meet yeah. with him and completely repentant heart knew he had hurt his dad yeah. badly and it was just a whole different way of treating things, which, right. is, which is cool. Well, the other thing that that father did is he met his son on his turf. That's right. He didn't summon his son to the living room or out to the backyard or whatever. He went into his room. Somebody advised me on that once uh, when I was addressing things with my, our own son. He's go meet him on his territory. Quick break to remind people that we're talking to James Ackerman, the president and CEO of Prison Fellowship the largest outreach to prisoners and former prisoners and their families in the U.S., working with tens of thousands of prisoners to truly transform them, help their families, and improve their odds of success when they are released from prison. Let's turn our attention to some of the programs you have for successful reentry. Right. You know, the prisoners have been there, some of them 10 and 20 years. Yeah. 
it's a radical thing to come at and, and rejoin society. What sort of programs do you have for those people? We have a growing initiative in this regard. We just promoted uh, a woman here at Prison Fellowship who, ran, who was the regional director for the Northeast and Southeast to become our national director of church and community engagement. We are looking for churches all over the country to raise their hand and say, we will welcome men and women into our men's groups, into our women's groups, in these churches who are graduating from your programs, not as a project, but as a brother and sister in the Lord. Yeah? So let's go back to the Minnesota. Yeah? There's a church in Minnesota called Calvary Baptist Church. It's in Minneapolis. And they have a reentry program with Shakopee Women's Prison that we talked about on last week. And uh, they literally, 40 people in this church meet every week with these women to mentor them, to shepherd them along, you know, uh, figure out how they're doing, counsel them, and all of these things. It's a really, really beautiful thing. Again, the value of having a mentor um, is huge. I mentioned William before, who I've been in a mentoring relationship with. When William and I were still meeting in prison, uh, I said to William, can I give you some advice? When you get out of here, go back to that church in which your mother raised you and join the men's group. Don't go back to the neighborhood that you used to go palling around in mm -hmm. with your fellow drug dealers. Yep. Go back to the church your mother raised you in. And he did. He took my advice. And today, he may not make church every Sunday, but he doesn't miss that Wednesday night men's group for anything. Yep. Yeah, I've heard that. I mean, the, the small group or a men's group or something like that is has a much more profound effect. As long as you're engaged in the Word of course. every day, having that close relationship and people you develop bonds yeah. with, that, that means the world. But, it's, you know, think about, you know, the men's group at your church, right? Those are the guys who know that this man over here who owns a construction company is opening to hiring ex-offenders. Yep. Or that guy that runs the ice cream shop or, you know, whatever. And so... You know, it, is it just that ability to help you get integrated into the fabric of the community, but also keep you accountable, right? The balance of the two can be, is easily accomplished through a healthy men's group. Yep. It also <coughs> brings the church alive. Yeah, it really does. Alive. Yep. Because you're really ministering in a very real way, and you know it, you know? Yeah, it's interesting that you're, you're, agreeing with the concept that Byron Johnson, who wrote, right. you know, More God, Less Crime, right. he talked about the key of having a mentor, yeah. both in prison and afterwards, yes. to success for yes. these people. It's yeah. so, so utterly it's important. It's essential, yeah. So how far are you along with those programs? Have you talked to 10 churches, 50 churches? We have churches all over the country that we have strong relationships with who receive men and women into, the, into their communities, but we don't have enough of them. And mm -hmm. that's why this is a major initiative for us to go out. We know the communities to which people are going to be returning, particularly people that are in graduating from our academies, right? And we just want the churches to raise their hands and say, we're prepared to do it. Some aren't going to raise their hand and some are, mm -hmm. right? And the reality is, is that, you know, more often than not, it's going to be churches that are in the urban environments that, we, that we're focusing on than it is the big wealthy church in the, the, the megachurch in, the, mega church in yeah. the suburban community. And isn't proximity important? I mean, yeah, it's near the prisons, so you can go to the prisons, build relationships with people while they're there. But even that, that isn't always practical, right? Mm -hmm. the, the time it takes, right, to go into a prison and meet somebody and mentor them is, 
and then you know get back home and all of that is not something everybody can do yep. right I mentored started my mentoring with William you know in prison and then continued out of prison but not everybody can do that yeah but if I know that this person is going to be leaving our program in Houston yeah and returning to Dallas Texas and I know that that person lives near downtown Dallas and that this particular church in downtown Dallas, Texas is prepared to receive people, I can at least begin to prepare them to receive this person. It's like and a, a, a data project. You're, you're yeah. creating a database of, right. of these churches that are yeah. willing to help. Absolutely. You talk to a person, you screen them and say, hey, if you're heading to yeah. this area, here's a church. Yeah, and I use Texas as my example because our big academy in Texas, which has 150 men in the program at any given time, right, um, uh, it allows inmates to apply from all over the state, right? And then they review the applications, see who's likely to be considered for parole or whose sentence is going to be coming up, ending soon, and they allow us to then, you know, call our candidates from, from that group. But we have people coming from all corners of Texas to come to our program, which is in just outside of Houston. I want to jump ahead and talk about a call to action now because I want to make sure we have enough time for that and then we can return to my, my final question about the uh, restoring the, the justice system. Um, do you have a call to action? You issued one in the last program. If you'd like to do the same thing again, that's fine. Yeah. But what would you like to challenge our listeners to do, to step out and do regarding our prison population right. and, and helping to sort of change this system? Yeah. In light of this conversation, my call to action is to consider being one of those churches that will receive men and women coming out of prison, whether it's in the federal system or the state system, who are returning to your communities. And the reason why I want you to raise your hand and say we're willing to do that is anybody can walk through the front doors of any church in the country. And isn't it better off to know who's coming into your community and to be able to come around them and support them uh, as they come out of prison? And again, you can go to the Prison Fellowship website at prisonfellowship.org, go to our volunteer section, and actually become a reentry church, a reentry volunteer, if you will. Um, you can also become an advocacy volunteer at prisonfellowship.org. Uh, and then, as I mentioned last week, we don't take a dollar from government. We are fully supported by individual donations and that of, of, uh, of uh, uh, foundations. And um, uh, if you feel so led to support our work, please again go to prisonfellowship.org and go to the donate section and, uh, and please make a donation. Let's spend a few minutes now talking about sentencing reform, advocating for restoring the justice system. What, what sort of work are you guys doing in that area? We're working all over the place at a state and federal level, primarily on two initiatives. One, fair sentencing, right? Uh, proportionate sentencing. Look, people need to be punished for their crimes. Let's just make sure we get the sentencing, the, the proportionate sentencing correct. And then second is reentry is allowing, breaking down what we call the second prison, which is if people have served their debt to society, give them the opportunity to get a job, to vote, to, you know, to live successfully, right? Don't make it impossible for them to live successfully, which only contributes to an increase in recidivism. Have you heard of My Brother's Keeper? Yes. Okay. Yeah, this is the, the uh, former president's initiative. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Michael Smith. Yeah. And our... Um, 
Uh, our head of advocacy and public policy is Craig DeRoche, who is the former Speaker of the House of the State of Michigan. So we have a really, really solid team. The advocacy team's like almost all lawyers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that can be good and bad. I, I, yeah, I stay away from that, that <laughs> corner of the building. They scare me. Um, yeah, one of the <laughs> things I heard him speak, and one of the things he said is the first thing that happens is that you come out of prison, and you get an application for a job, and it says, have you ever been arrested for anything? Right. Do you have any felony convictions? Yeah. And 99.9 .9 times out of 100, yeah. that knocks you out of getting a job. Of course. So one of the things they are trying to do is advocate that you remove that question perhaps, right. or, or if the question is there, that somehow it doesn't have the response that it typically right. has. Yeah. Are you doing work on things like that? We are, we are, absolutely. Um, it, it's fascinating, I mean, we've been working on the uh, Sentencing Reform Act for nonviolent drug offenses at the federal level for a couple of years now, if not more, it almost made it through the House before the uh, change in, in president, and then it didn't. So everyone's trying to resurrect it again and get it going. But yeah, we work on all of these initiatives. And you know, ban the boxes, this particular one that you are referring to, is just that, which is save that question for later, right? Just let's not, let's not, let's not count people out because they, they have uh, you know, a conviction in their past. Let's you know first give them a chance to d you give you as an employer a chance to decide whether this person actually seems qualified, and then if you have the conversation about why did you go to prison, the question then the discussion becomes more: Is the problem that led to you going to prison going to become my problem, or have you addressed that? We're out of time. Oh, again, <laughs> which is I'll amazing. see you next Wednesday. Yeah, really, <laughs> we could just stay here and talk all afternoon if you'd like to. Uh, first of all, thank you yeah, for your time and letting me come in here and talk yeah. to you. Thank you and bless you for Prison Fellowship. What thank an amazing, you. amazing ministry. Really appreciate what you're doing. And, yeah. and, and uh, we've got to figure out some way that I can get involved. Uh, if listeners want to find out more about Prison Fellowship, please check them out on the web at prisonfellowship.org. Uh, we'll also be posting information on our Facebook and Twitter pages. A replay of the show can be found at thegrayson30.com and WERA.FM websites 24 hours after airing tonight. The show will also re-air on WERALP this Sunday at 8.30 a.m. This is Ed signing off from Grayson 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Have a great night and be sure to tune into Grace. <laughs>